Ezekiel chapter 37 tonight. Exciting stuff here that we're diving into. Now, just a reminder, um, we shifted gears on Sunday as we kind of looked at the second half of Ezekiel 36. And we have to remember that God, his sort of prophetic timepiece is the Jews, Israel. And, and it's not really circled around the church of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting thing. Um, one of the things that makes people confused is when they try to mix the church age up with so much of what the Bible talks about in prophecy, uh, especially the future events. And the reason I make this point is, you know, there's some people that try to mix up the church into the tribulation period and that we have to go through that with the Jews. Um, I don't believe that for so many reasons. One of the reasons, by the way, is the 70 weeks of Daniel. Remember, where was the church, for you 70 week Daniel people who know that, that prophecy, where was the church in the first 69 weeks of, of the story of Daniel, six, 70 weeks? They weren't anywhere, they didn't exist. The first 69 weeks were before Jesus came. Then Jesus, then there's this gap between the 69th week and the 70th week or the 70th seven year period. Um, each is a, a week of seven years if you remember the way that goes in Daniel's prophecy. So there's one more seven year period determined upon thy holy people and upon thy city, he says to Daniel. That's Jerusalem, that's the Jews. And if the church wasn't in the first 69 weeks, why would we be in the 70th week of the, of the years determined upon Israel, thy holy city, Jerusalem? And that's just one thing you need to remember. You know, we're living in the church age and really when the day of the Lord begins, we will be taken out of here. We weren't in that first part. A lot of these prophecies uh, we see are really for the Jews uh, from the rapture of the church, the fullness of the Gentiles, and then once we're out of here, then a massive shifting into what the rest of the Bible says about Bible prophecy is gonna kick into gear right there. Now, I say that because um, there's, there's so many prophecies that were filled you know, about Jesus and his first coming. There's tons of prophecies yet to be fulfilled about his second coming. But um, in the meantime, the church age is not really packed full of prophecies, but you, you gotta understand, there are some prophecies that are coming to pass in our age, in the church age. And one such prophecy is here in chapter 36 and 37 of Ezekiel, where the Lord starts connecting the bones. Uh, and uh, it's not a full fulfillment, I would, I would argue, uh, that we're gonna see tonight, uh, because the Lord's starting something that he's gonna do once the day of the Lord happens, once the rapture of the church happens, then, then the Lord's gonna kick Israel into gear full steam ahead. And what we're watching right now, I think is the end of the church age. We're watching the end of this, you know, 2000 long, you know, church age time when after Jesus ascended into heaven, the church began. The church age is this gap in the prophetic clock. Um, but the Lord is organizing the players and the pieces. That's why the Bible in talking about the rapture of the church in First Thessalonians four and five says the church, you're not in the darkness. You get to see the signs of the times of when everything's gonna be ready to roll to kick in those events. Um, and so that's the exciting thing about living in this church age. Now, if you lived 500 years ago, Bible prophecy didn't mean a whole lot to you. And there's a reason why a lot of those commentaries from hundreds of years ago uh, didn't know what to say. They tried to just, either they didn't say anything about prophecy or they, or they tried to say it was all figurative and you don't take it literally and all that stuff because there was no literal Israel. There was no you know, literal, a lot of these nations that are referred to in the last days and they weren't powerful or they weren't getting along or whatever. But today we're seeing all the pieces, all the players perfectly come into play. One such deal that we saw on Sunday was Ezekiel 36, where there was the physical regathering, replanting, rebuilding of Israel. We saw that in the last, you know, from chapter 36, verse 16, all the way to the end of the chapter, we saw on Sunday, sort of that physical uh, regathering and, and rebuilding. And, and that's something we are witnessing. And, and some of you, if you're old enough here, you got to see one of the biggest events, I think, in modern day Bible prophecy. And that was when Israel became a nation, once again, May 14th, 1948. How many of you guys were alive when that happened? Raise your hand. That's awesome. 
I envy you all because uh, you, you're like, no, you don't, Brett. I ache in pain, man. I, no, I'm, I'm already there with you on that one. But, uh, but yeah, if you lived during that time, you saw with your own eyes, like all Bible prophecy students that didn't believe in the, 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 um, the Jews still being God's chosen people, they should have changed their notes at that moment and said, God has a literal plan to rebuild, restore Jerusalem. Uh, and Israel and the Jews and that literal regathering as a nation. By the way, that's never happened in the history of the world. No people group, this is an interesting little fact for you. No people group in the history of the world that's been scattered all over the world, after two generations of being scattered, they uh, have never regathered. The idea of a, a nation being scattered by their enemies, whether it's the Assyrians or the, you know, like, uh, I mean, it's amazing how many nation groups, the Babylonians, they, they made a bunch of people extinct. Um, the Philistines were one such group, by the way. There's no people on the, on, the, on the earth called Philistines, even though they wanna say the Palestinians are Philistines, they're not. They're, uh, they're actually uh, uh, Arabs, uh, Jordanians. Uh, it's a long story. Don't get me off on that little bandwagon. But, but so many groups of people are, are extinct because they got conquered by nations, assimilated, and never to be heard of again. No group has ever passed two generations, but the Jews, they were scattered for more than 2,000 years and only to be regathered. It's a miracle uh, what has happened there. Nothing, none, you know, nobody even argues when you read the Bible how to the point they lost their language, you know, a lot of people think Jesus was a Hebrew-speaking Jew, you know, there in those days. Does anybody know what language Jesus actually spoke? Aramaic. Um, and that, where did that all come from? Well, if you remember, like Book of Daniel written in much of it in uh, the, the, the language of Aramaic because, well, the Chaldean and the, the Babylonian influence and the assimilation, by the time even Jesus was on the scene, they weren't speaking Hebrew. Uh, the language was lost. It was only a, an academic language, kind of like Latin is today. Uh, they only talked about it in school, but nobody ever spoke Hebrew. It wouldn't be till much later when the Zionist movement really started catching you know, ground in the 1800s and, and a, a guy by the name of Ben Yehuda, uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda sat at his dinner table that one night in Jerusalem as a migrated Jew back to Jerusalem. And he says, as for me and my house, we shall speak Hebrew from this day forward. And he and a bunch of people started teaching everyone Hebrew, their old lost language. The Bible says this would happen. We're gonna see that. We're gonna even see how the Lord's gonna bring back a language that was extinct. And the people, if you go to Jerusalem today, everybody speaks Hebrew, except for me. Uh, I got this great book though. Uh, if you ever go to Israel, you gotta get this. It's a little book that helps you with your Hebrew. And it's just hilarious. It's the, every page is a cartoon. And, and, it, and it shows a sentence, two sentences. Um, and the sentence says, or one sentence basically. So like one example, uh, there's, a, there's an old lady sitting on a chair and she's got a fork stuck in her leg. And, and it says, it's not nice to put a fork in Ma's leg. Um, and then it says the Hebrew word for fork is Ma's leg. <laughs> it's great. So every time I go to a restaurant, I'm like, uh, can I have a month's leg? They're like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm picturing an old lady with a fork in her leg. I'm like, that's, that's what I need. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's a, anyway, I digress. Um, the Hebrew language was, was brought back to life and it's what is spoken in Israel to this day. It's an amazing fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So all that to say, we're starting to see kind of these amazing prophe prophecies in our age, in the church age which is uh, kind of a rare thing as far as if you look at the grand scheme of history, we're watching all these little details come together for some very specific prophecies that lead up to the Gog-Magog war of Ezekiel 38 and also the uh, rapture of the church uh, and uh, you know, the, uh, even, even the scenario for the tribulation. I mean, think of all the, th the things that are gonna happen during the tribulation period um, that really, even 50 years ago, people are like, what, what do you mean they're gonna, a mark of the beast, no cash? Who, who works with no cash? You know, and, and now today we see all the technology in place. Uh, there's even countries like Sweden and others who pretty much uh, you know, uh, embraced the cashless society. Many people are even chipped. They have the RFID chip embedded under their skin in Sweden. And they can just go scan the you know, Coke machine and 
and get their Coke out or whatever. Um, it, it's already, that technology is already there. Uh, it's just, there's still the antichrist that needs to come, which we're not gonna see because we'll be taken up out of here because we're not appointed under that time of wrath, the tribulation period. So the, the chapters before us are explaining um, the regathering of God's people Israel. And this, this is one of the most amazing prophecies. If you don't believe in God, can I give you this challenge to read Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and see what the Lord says, that, in, in, that he would scatter his people for thousands of years and then regather them. And not only regather them, there's so many little specific things, like the, the land would become fruitful again. We saw last Sunday that the Israel would become like what? Does anybody remember? The Garden of Eden. And man, if you drive through parts of Israel today, you're kind of like, man, this looks like the Garden of Eden. Like it's amazing how prolific their fruit and vegetables uh, and their farming has become in Israel. And, and they've become a powerful, safe place to be. Uh, you know, the Bible says in these days where this is gonna happen in, in uh, Ezekiel 38, there's gonna be peace and safety in Israel. And frankly, when I travel the world, I never feel more safe than when I'm in Israel. Now you say, but Brett, I think it's a war zone over there. Oh, it is in the Middle East. Yeah, but Israel's in the Middle East. But man, if you go to Israel, you're definitely in this little isolated protection place. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of safety and stuff like that, uh, you're way more dangerous. Uh, did you hear about the shootings over in Southeast? Was it last night or night before last? I forget when, uh, but uh, the, you know, 50 gunshots or something in the Portland area. Like, like it's, it's way more dangerous to walk around Portland than it is Jerusalem. Um, it's an amazing thing how safe Israel has become largely due to their iron dome system and their military and all that stuff. They built a wall around the West Bank and stuff and they've kind of controlled things. But, uh, but what's interesting to me is to see how that, that part of the prophecy is fulfilled. It's in a time of peace and safety. And Israel's not really experienced that much peace and safety throughout the generations up until recent years. Um, but all that to say, uh, th these little prophecies in Ezekiel, we saw 36, we saw kind of the, the physical restoration of the land. In chapter 37, we're gonna see more of a spiritual restoration of the people uh, and the land really. Uh, and we're gonna take a look at this. Now, this is uh, sometimes referred to as the prophecy or the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, and uh, this is where that old, you know, gospel spiritual uh, comes from, you know, dem bones, dem bones, you know, Ezekiel. Uh, it's, it's a great old, uh, you can look it up on YouTube if you're a young person. Uh, it's a great old gospel spiritual. But, you know, the, the toe bone's connected to the foot bone, the foot bone's connected to the heel bone, and all the way up to your head bone and neck bone and all that stuff. It, it's great. But it's a, it's a singing of, of what's happening here. There, there's kind of a, a crazy thing that happens to Ezekiel and what he has to see but it's something that means something really important for Israel and for the Jews, but it also has great meaning for us. Let's take a look. Ezekiel 37, verse one. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, thou knowest. I love this. Ezekiel, what a, what a dude. Lord, you know. I'm not even gonna try to answer. Lord, just tell me, you know. You know all things. Like sometimes I think that should be our attitude, like Ezekiel, you know. We always wanna question things and wonder, Lord, what are you doing? And what are you thinking? And what's going on? But I think sometimes we have to just kind of say, Lord, you know all things. And when we don't know what to pray or think, just say, Lord, thou knowest. And, uh, and so reveal it to me. I love, this happens to John in the book of Revelation. You know, who are these arrayed in fine white linen? He says, I have the foggiest idea, John says. And then he says, well, the elder says, well, let me answer. And so he answers. Uh, I love that. That's a very godly way of handling it, raising the question so that we wanna know what the answer is. Um, by the way, that's a good form of ministry too, I've found, to be godlike in that, where um, we're, we're being like the Father in heaven when we raise a question so that people wanna know what the answer is. Um, I've found that sometimes when you're talking with someone, you can ask a question that makes them think and then they wanna know what the answer is and, and that's a good way to communicate. That's the way God does it here. So he says, Lord, you, you know what's going on. So he sees this valley of bones. 
Uh, this is like, a, we should be doing this in October. This would be a great October story, kind of a thriller moment here in the Bible. Um, I remember when my buddy Gary Pyle and I, we were fourth grade, uh, we went up on Sterling Creek Road where he lived and we were just out playing in the woods and stuff and we, we found this old mine. Um, but we couldn't find flashlights, so we found a couple candles in his mom's uh, drawer where she kept all her nice candles. And, um, and we grabbed a couple candles and some matches, and we went up, up in the woods, and we lit up these candles, and we went, and you had to kind of crawl through the squeezed little hole of this kind of collapsed mine that was there. And we squeezed through the entry hole, and then it kind of opened up, and there were the old timbers, and it was like an old mine from the, the gold rush days of the Jacksonville area there. Well, we, we walked back there with our candles. We were, we were thinking we were real brave fourth graders, you know. And then all of a sudden, he and I kind of, as we walked, we heard this kind of clinkety-clink, and we looked down, and we just kicked a bunch of old bones. And I remember looking at Gary, and he looked at me, and we went, ah! And we ran, we ran, out, of the, we ran out of there, and we, we sat down at the opening of the cave or the, the mine, and we're like, Oh man, and I, one of us, I forget which one I was saying, I think that was a human skull in there. And he's like, that wasn't a human skull. It, but yeah, but, and we argued. And so we, we mustered up enough uh, strength to go back in. <laughs> and we went in and confirmed it was a coyote. <laughs> it was an old coyote that had died there in that mine. And just, uh, it was all dry bones, rib cage. And we kind of did a little forensics on it and stuff. There is, you know, uh, but there was no flesh on it. It was all dry bones. Um, that, that's what Ezekiel sees. He's in this valley of dry bones, a big pile of dead, dry bones. And um, he says, you know, can these bones live? Now, the logical answer is uh, no. Once you see bones, it's a pretty good diagnosis to say, yeah, they're not going to make it. Uh, you know, if you're seeing just a pile of bones, I'd say, they're dead. There's, you can't even get a pulse, you know? Uh, it's like, no, these bones are dead. So, but, but Ezekiel, being a spiritual man, knows that, God knows something that maybe he doesn't know. Sure enough, it goes on, verse four. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, o, o ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and I will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am Jehovah, or the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Jehovah. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and, I, uh, and as I prophesied, there was, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone, and, you know, leg bone connected to the knee bone, uh, knee bone connected to the thigh bone, that whole thing. Well, verse eight, and when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Now, before we get any further on this, uh, what's going on? The clinkety clink of these bones start clinking together, little skeletons, like this is thriller. You know, it's like, like a little crazy right here, but then flesh starts coming on these, but there's no breath and they're like, they're like zombies or, or I don't know if they're just still blobs laying on the ground of people dead. Uh, I don't know, but are they standing, just uh, soulless or breathless? I don't know what's going on, but, but we know that the flesh and the sinew and the muscle, it's all back in place. The bones are brought back together, but they're not breathing. They're just kind of zombie-like state. Now, now, this is something you need to understand because I wonder, in all these prophecies of Ezekiel 36 and 37, one thing you might wanna ask yourself is, at what state are we in in the fulfilling of this prophecy? Like, like, you know, one of the things is, you know, that we can see in chapter 36 is there's so many of the prophecies that we can sort of check the box and say, yeah, Israel's becoming like the Garden of Eden, check. Yeah, Israel's becoming peace and secure, yeah, check. Hebrew language, check, it's back in place. Like there's so many prophecies, but where, where are we still kind of in the middle of this? And so here's a question I would ask you, um, when it, especially when it comes to kind of the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. Um, have, have they had life breathed into them yet? Now, now that's a good question. And, and I wouldn't die on this battlefield because I know some good Bible teachers say, yeah, this has all happened. Israel has life breath, breathed into them and that's why they're a nation and they're flourishing. And I understand that. But part of me kind of wonders, maybe we should slow down a little bit and under, understand that maybe we're only up to kind of verse eight where we see the life or you know, the bones all brought back together with the structure. We see the skin and the muscle 
Uh, Israel is a nation and it's flourishing with people, but spiritually, largely, they're still very much dead. They haven't been given new life. And how does that life happen? Well, this is where a key word in this little lesson, you need to mark it in your Bible. And it's the word that's mentioned both in verse uh, eight, but also um, uh, in verse five, where it says, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you. Or in verse uh, eight, but there was no breath in them, not yet. The word breath there, you might jot it down in your notes, the word in the Hebrew is ruach, which is an interesting word in the Hebrew because it, it can mean three things. Wind, um, breath, or spirit. Uh, it's interchangeable all throughout the Bible. The word ruach is used to talk about the spirit of the Lord or about the wind or about breath. And in the New Testament, as it turns out, there's an equivalent word in the Greek, pneuma, which is where that word breath, wind, and uh, spirit is part of that as well. So it's funny how those, in the New Testament, Old Testament, those two words are always used talking about the same thing, wind, breath, or um, spirit. So what's happening here? It's, it's the Lord hasn't breathed life into them, but how does he breathe life? Through the spirit. Guess which, you know, what word is used when it says, and the spirit of the Lord blew upon the, the waters. Remember at the story of creation in Genesis chapter one? How did creation happen? It was by the spirit, the ruach, the, that brought in the, the life to this world. In the same sort of creative power, the ruach, the breath, is what's gonna bring these bones back to life. That's just kind of an interesting thing in, in the, as it relates to God breathing life. That's why I don't believe man will ever be able to take something that's not living and turn it into living. Oh, we've tried. Science continues to try. You know, that's the problem with evolution is, uh, you know, one of the biggest problems, one of millions and millions, billions and billions of problems uh, that evolution has. Uh, but the biggest problem that I can think of is when exactly did life, when was life breathed into whatever it is you want to call it, the prebiotic goo that suddenly was struck by lightning? When was the ruach? When was the breathing of life into something? Because that's something humanity and science cannot replicate is the creation of something that's living from something that's not living. And I believe that's only God because it's the spirit of God that breathes life. He's the one who can actually do that. We can create an ear uh, from DNA um, and people say, see, humanity can, can create stuff, an ear, you can grow an ear on your arm. Now science, and like, oh, it's a good job, a little weird. Uh, but you can do that. But, um, but you know, if, if you're really competing with God, you gotta get your own DNA. Uh, that's the first thing. You, you, you know, these people start with the DNA and say, okay, well, we've done what God does in creating an ear. No, uh, get your own DNA. Get your own polynucleotide strands. Start there and then try to create something. But be that as it may, here it's the spirit that's lacking. These, these, these bones are just non-living things. And I wonder if this is a reference to maybe where Israel is right now. Because largely the Jews in Israel are um, atheists. Well, well, what about the believing Jews? Well, as it turns out, remember, um, how is a Jew saved today? Well, you have to understand, as much as we like to think, you know, the Jews keeping the law of Moses, that saves them, it doesn't. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. That's the rule. You've got to believe God and it will count for you righteousness. But once Jesus, the Messiah, came, died on the cross for the sins of the world, was buried and rose from the grave, once that happened, um, that it really, it requires Jew or Gentile, we're all brought under one roof there. If we want to be saved, we have to believe in Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Not Abraham, not Moses, you know, not Elijah, not Ezekiel. There's only one name. So really the Jews are even still, even the practicing Jews, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Hasidic Jews or the Orthodox Jews, um, they still need Jesus, uh, just like you and I need Jesus because they're sinners. And Jesus is the lamb that was slain for the sins of just the Gentiles? No, the sins of the whole world. So largely Israel, even the, you know, Hanukkah, you know, celebrating the Passover, remembering the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, even those Jews that are keeping those things, they still need Jesus Christ. But good news, they will all see Jesus as the Messiah. And I think that's coming soon, but I get ahead of myself. Um, 
are the Jews saved right now? No, they're very much lost. Um, and I've mentioned it before, 70% of the Jews in, in um, like Tel Aviv uh, are atheists today. So um, I believe we're, we've seen the Valley of Dry Bones. We've seen a lot of Ezekiel 36 come together for the Jews. We've seen a good part of the, the bones, clinkety clink, coming together, the flesh put on them, but there's no ruach yet in them. That's gonna happen, I believe, uh, soon. But let's see how it happens here as it goes out. So verse nine, then said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind. Remember, they're just zombies, breathless, spiritless. Prophesy unto the wind. Uh, guess what word is there for wind? Ruach, same word. Might even say that uh, in your margin or breath. Same word, wind, breath, or spirit. Uh, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy son of man, and say unto the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came in unto them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. The four winds, by the way, speaks of from all four directions, north, south, east, and west is kind of the idea there. From, from all over, from all directions, the spirit Ruach came and would breathe life into the Jews from all the four corners of the world, if you would, is kind of the idea there. So uh, the, the, the spirit will come and breathe life. When will this happen? I believe perhaps Romans eleven twenty five, 25, um, where it says that, you know, the, the, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all of Israel shall be saved. Um, it could be that that's when the, the breath, the Ruach actually reaches the Jews. Now, again, you'll read other commentaries and have other opinions about this. Some say, nope, this has already happened. The Jews have life in them. I'm not so sure about that. I would, I would pray about that and maybe read some of the other passages and see what else it says here. Um, as we go on, it says in verse 11, then he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So basically this next is explaining what we just went over. Uh, and it's nice, a little commentary on the Valley of Dry Bones. So who are the bones? It's the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. So that's the question. Is the putting the spirit in these people, just waking them up from all over the world and gathering them from all the lands of the world, bringing them back into Israel? That could be, that's an argument people make. But I think we're in the middle of that. We're still seeing the gathering of Jews in, in Israel. Even to this day, Jews are migrating from New York City and other places around the world into Israel. Um, just like Portlanders are migrating to Texas and, uh, and Idaho, uh, same, uh, same thing. The Jews are all over the world. There's no safe place for Jews today because of anti-Semitism around the world. But God's gathering his people. Um, and I believe he, as soon as that full gathering and the fullness of the Gentiles is all complete, that's when he's gonna breathe life whew, on the Ruach, on the Jews. He's gonna breathe life on them and, it's, and they're gonna come to life. And that's, that's during the tribulation period, by the way. That's what I believe. Well, all that to say, um, the next section of this. Now, now, by the way, I gotta say, we can spend more time talking about the Valley of Dry Bones. It's, it's a fun passage. And whenever you hear teaching on Ezekiel 37, you know, uh, everybody talks about the, the Valley of Dry Bones. And then the last half of this chapter, uh, you, it's dead silence. You'll find that a lot of people kind of avoid this next section and largely because I don't think people know what it means. But I believe that, um, you know, uh, the Lord has a way of revealing some of the things that were mysteries to us. The closer we get to the end times, one of the things about Bible prophecy that's so fun especially as we're last days, end times kind of believers, is the Lord reveals prophecy to us the further and closer we get down the road, it all starts coming together and making sense. 
One of the things you'll hear an amillennialist who's a replacement theologian, people say God's done with the Jews and amillennial means there's no millennial kingdom and it's none of, none of it's literal or even our preterist friends, you know, Christians that believe it's all figurative. One of the problems um, with that is we're seeing all these literal things come to pass, things that they deemed as just figurative things. And they're either, they're either saying, I'm not gonna look at this or uh, what a coincidence, all these things are literally happening that were supposed to be just figurative. That's where they are right now. But one of the things that, uh, that we need to make sure and do is, is remind them, because see, anomalinists will tell you if you're a pre-tribber, they'll say, you have a very new view of end times eschatology. Like that's one of the big arguments. They'll say, you guys, you know, they'll, they'll talk about Darby was the first guy that ever mentioned the rapture, which is not true, by the way. Um, I've done teachings, by the way, on the history of the, the pre-trib rapture view and, and how far back it goes. My argument, it goes all the way back to the apostle Paul um, and Peter and Jesus. Uh, they, they talk about the rapture of the church. And, and so, it, it, but, but I'll admit, a lot of people didn't get it uh, the way it was all gonna shake out for centuries because they didn't take anything literally because you couldn't. There was no literal Israel. There was no literal Jews gathered in a nation. So they all said, okay, that's, that can't be true. And so they all chalked it off. So yes, the pre-trib view is a newer sort of uh, understanding of, of the way it's all gonna shake out. But uh, that's okay. When it comes to Bible prophecy, remember Daniel? It says, seal up the words of this book until the time of the end. And Daniel sealed it up and said, I don't understand what I just wrote. That's what he said. I have no idea what I just wrote and I'm gonna walk away and serve the king. That's what Daniel did. But at the end of the book of Revelation, same kind of language, except this time the Lord says, seal not the words of this book. Um, and, uh, and the Lord, he, 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 he um, hides secrets in the Bible. I'll show you that in a minute, hopefully, if we can get to that. Um, but be that as it may, uh, so as we keep going here, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of see a section that nobody really likes to talk about and stuff like that. I gotta get my notes out here for a second. Uh, something I kind of forgot. Uh, here we go. Um, all right. So um, it says here in chapter uh, 36, verse 15, the word of the Lord uh, came again to me saying, moreover, uh, uh, thou son of man, take the one stick and write upon it. And um, it's, it, it, by the way, the word stick there is an interesting word that is branch or tree. If you look up the Hebrew, uh, it, it's tree or branch. You kind of have to picture that more than just a, a walking stick or something. But take one stick, write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and for the house of Israel and his companions and join them one to another into one stick and they shall become one in thine hand. Okay, now you got two sticks, branches and you're gonna join them together. Question, now again, you won't find a lot of people talk about this or pastors or commentaries, but when you think of the joining of two branches, does anybody have anything that makes you think of elsewhere in the Bible? Right, the grafting of the branches in what book? Romans chapter 11, uh, or nine through 11, that, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, Romans nine through 11 is kind of the commentary on God's plan for the Jews as it relates to the Gentile church. Uh, if you're ever confused about how we as Gentiles should view the Jews or the Jews should view the Gentiles, um, just read Paul's commentary. Romans nine through 11 tells us about that. But uh, we'll get to that in a second. So, so this is just a key that might make you think about the grafting of two branches. But you won't, again, you don't hear a lot about this. Um, but all that to say, um, it says there in verse 17, join them one another into one stick that they shall become one in thine hand. And verse 18, when the children of Israel, uh, children of thy people shall speak unto thee saying, wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Like, what does it mean by these two sticks? being joined together. Well, say, verse 19 of them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. Okay, question, who is Ephraim? Son of Joseph. And interestingly, uh, of all the names Ephraim, uh, this is something you have to kind of read the rest of the Bible to know, but when oftentimes the Northern tribes were referred to as Ephraim, 
uh, became the dominant tribe in the last days of the Northern 10 tribes. And so instead of, do you remember, they did the same thing with the Southern two tribes. They boiled it instead of just Benjamin and Judah. What do they call it? Judah. Judah and Israel was the, 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 basically the civil war, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. And you remember how Israel was divided. Um, but as time went by, it was called Judah and Ephraim or uh, Judah and Israel. That, that's the way it was divided. Some people just take this and say, oh good, Judah and Israel are gonna be joined to get back together someday. And they take the two sticks there. The problem with that is it doesn't really fit the, the, the naming of the sticks. Did you see what the sticks were named? Back in verse 16, uh, take one stick and write upon it, uh, one for Judah uh, and, and for the children of Israel, his companions, Okay, now that's confusing right there because Judah and Israel, that was the divided kingdom, but make one stick for Judah and Israel. Oh, wait a minute, that's a little weird. It should have been one stick. If, if you're saying it's the joining of Israel and Judah or Judah and Ephraim um, or whatever you wanna do, yeah, you could make those names. But when you put Israel and Judah together, you're combining the, the civil war countries. Are you guys with me so far on one stick? So you take the one stick right upon it, Judah, and, uh, and for the children of Israel, and then take the other stick and write upon it, Joseph, which is also a stick for Ephraim and for all the house of Israel and his companions. So that's where it gets confusing. That's why a lot of people don't wanna talk about this. Why would you divide out Joseph or Ephraim out from the rest of Israel? Uh, that doesn't really compute uh, in a lot of the circles of Bible prophecy and, and, and it makes not a lot of sense. Um, and why would this be grafted together, this stick, to become one stick? What's the deal here? Well, let's keep reading. So verse 20, the sticks whereupon thou writest shall be in thine hand before thine eyes. And verse 21, say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. Question, when did this start? Verse 21, when did that start? Well, you might argue in the 1700s or you know, in the, even the 1800s, Theodore Herzl and the regathering of the Jews back into their land. This is modern times, verse 21, when Israel starts to be regathered. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Now this makes you think, okay, maybe this is, you know, the southern tribe of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel, but why did he name the sticks? You know, basically Israel and Judah's one stick and Joseph's the other. It's still confusing. Verse 23, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and I will cleanse them so they shall be my people and I will be their God. And verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dealt, dwelt and they shall dwell therein, even they, their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince over, uh, forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and um, multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall uh, be with them. I will be their God, they shall be my people and the heathen shall know that I the Lord do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Okay. Now, question, it says here in verse 24, um, the king of David, uh, my servant, shall be over them. Does anybody remember? Um, uh, um, when, when, when will the king of David be the forevermore kingdom? Anybody? The millennial kingdom, when the second coming of Christ. This whole section of, of, of the passage 
is actually right there um, when Jesus returns. This is the kingdom of God. Um, and so you say, okay, Brett, so all of Israel will be joined together during the kingdom. And it also so shows us something here. It shows us that, um, you know, that, that um, they'll be uh, around Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. It, it mentions that. And by the way, a huge section of the last section of Ezekiel is gonna be about the, the, the millennial kingdom temple in Jerusalem. We're gonna spend a ton of time on that one. And, um, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into that. The last you know, whole section of Ezekiel is about that. Uh, the millennial kingdom. Now, again, your preterists or your amillennials say, oh, yes, yeah, it's not a, a literal kingdom. It's not a literal uh, temple that's going to be real, but it's all spiritual and stuff like that. Um, I would argue, why would Ezekiel give us pages and pages of descriptions of the dimensions, the temple, the stuff that's all laid out, a very literal description of the temple? Why would he go through so much pain to tell us all about that if it's just a figurative spiritual temple that he wants to rebuild? Um, I believe it's a very literal thing that we should be talking about. Now, um, as we move forward on this, you say, okay, Brad, I, I got it. So the joining of the kingdoms and stuff, but what's this? There's a little bit of a mystery here, the stick of Joseph being joined to Israel and Judah. That, that's a problem. Well, I have a theory that I wanna throw out to you that you might consider. Because in the millennial kingdom, one of the things that I think that might be a mystery tucked away in the Bible is a little bit of what happens to the Gentile church during the millennial kingdom. And, and where are we gonna be? Well, the Bible tells us that, but, but a lot of times in these passages, like in Ezekiel, it seems like it's left out. Uh, where's the Gentile nations gonna be? But the first thing I wanna tell you is a lot of these things, I think the Lord reveals his secrets in his time. Jot these scriptures down. Amos chapter three, verse seven. Uh, it just says this, I'll read it to you. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants the prophets. One of the things the Bible says is he reveals secrets to his prophets, the servants, the prophets, in his timing. He's got a timing to reveal his secrets. Jot down Proverbs 25, verse two. Uh, this says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing um, or a matter. Um, but the honor of kings is to search out the matter. Um, God conceals, one of the God's glorious things is in his word, he conceals uh, certain matters uh, or issues or what have you. And it's the, it's the kingly people that go and dig and find the, the, the revealed you know, secret that's tucked away in the Bible. That's the problem with a lot of people's attitude toward Bible prophecies. They're not going to seek out the matter. They're going, ah, who could figure it out? It's too controversial, the end times and the future of the church. And it's a little uh, hard to think about. So, but, but it says... The Lord reveals, it's, it's the honor of kings to reveal that, uh, to search out the matter or the concealed thing. Jot down 1 Corinthians chapter two, uh, verse six. It says, how be it, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or mature, yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world that come to nothing. But listen, the Lord says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before uh, the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known the hidden secrets of the Bible, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Now you and I, we have the advantage on that one because we see the hidden Jesus in the Old Testament, right? Do you guys see it? I mean, how many Old Testament stories are the beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ? And we go, come on, you guys, you should have seen it. Not only did they have prophecies of when he'd ride into Jerusalem on a colt, but he'd be born in Bethlehem and born of a virgin. Like there's so many things that were just hidden little secrets that the Jews could have searched out, but they didn't. In the same way, I think, the way it's gonna go down in the last days, there's hidden secrets that the Lord reveals in his time that has to do with the way he's gonna kind of connect all the dots and bring it all forward. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the kings that search it out and dig. Um, so we can look at the Old Testament and, and see how they predicted the cross, but they didn't uh, know the cross was just a fulfillment. Uh, so God keeps secrets until it's time for that secret to be revealed. Okay, so now go with me here. We're, we're talking about Joseph. Uh, we're talking about Joseph uh, and his coat of many colors. Why was he the stick brought out? Well, here it is. Joseph is an amazing picture of Jesus Christ. And I can say that with 
fairly uh, solid authority uh, because for, for centuries, uh, Bible teachers have been seeing, it, it's, a, it's an amazing picture, the, the first tier or first level of that understanding. You know, Joseph was favored of the father, even as, as G- Jesus, as he was baptized, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Even as Joseph pleased his father, Jacob. Um, but meanwhile, Joseph was hated by his brothers. I'm assuming, by the way, you know the story of Joseph. You, you gotta know that. If you don't know that, uh, you gotta go back and read the story of Joseph You know, in the book of Genesis, chapter 41. Uh, just read through that whole story and, 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 and you'll see there's all these correlations. Joseph never had any record of sin in his life in the whole story, just like Jesus had no sin. God, uh, you know, d- did the same thing to Jesus that, that Jacob did with Joseph. Remember when Joseph said, oh, my sons are lost. So he says, I want you to go to Dothan and seek out and save, find your brothers. Remember that? And, and Joseph was given a coat of many colors, which was the authority being sent by the father. And so Joseph goes down to Dothan, finds his brothers. And what did his brothers, did they like him? No, they despised him and they rejected him. And what did they do? Just like they did with Jesus, the Jews, the brothers, you know, so, so the brothers of Joseph, you know, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, all these guys, that's a type of Israel, the Jews, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, um, if you would. And by the way, when you see the listing of the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph's not in a lot of those lists. The reason? Because Ephraim and Manasseh switched out in there. Sometimes Dan was kicked out. There's, a, there's reasons why the Lord shifts the listing of the 12 tribes of Israel. But oftentimes you'll never see the name of Joseph in there. Why is that? Joseph was the best of all the sons. Well, I believe the Bible is showing us something that's very kind of a, one of these little secrets the Lord says, Joseph stands out because of one thing. He's an amazing picture of Jesus Christ. How does he picture that? Well, you know, he went to seek out and save the brothers. The brothers despised him. They were gonna kill him. They threw him in a pit. But after a few days, they thought, well, let's not let him die. They pulled him out of the pit. Does that ring a bell? Jesus was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. But, but all that to say, then Joseph went and um, was sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites, which by the way, the Ishmaelites were just a bunch of nomadic Arabs, descendants of Ishmael, uh, gypsies really. And they sold off Joseph to the world. Um, the brothers, the brothers you know, thought he was dead, thought mission accomplished, we got rid of Joseph. But really, Joseph was not dead. He was uh, uh, in Egypt of all places. Egypt is a, a picture or a type of what? So Jesus, Joseph, goes into the world and what does he do? Well, there's this vision. You remember, he goes to prison. There's all kinds of, and I can talk about all the correlations of Jesus and Joseph, prison and all this stuff. But eventually the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, realizes Joseph knows stuff uh, and he's a revealer of dreams. And remember the, the, the whole famine, seven years of famine and seven years of prosperity. And Joseph says, here's what you gotta do. You gotta save during the years of prosperity. And then during the lean years, when everybody's gonna die of famine, you need to store up food. And the Pharaoh says, how better to have you in charge of that so that people will come. And that's what happened. There was a huge famine, everybody was dying, but if they wanted to eat, they had to come to Joseph. And Joseph was the one who fed them the bread. Um, for those seven years of famine. Now, this is an interesting picture. Um, seven years, you, you could also talk about the tribulation period. And who's gonna sustain the Jews during the seven years of the tribulation? Well, Jesus, yeah, that's always the right answer, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. Um, and, um, and there's all kinds of things that are gonna happen there. But here's, and I, I don't have time to go into all the details, but let me just kind of give you, a, wrap it up. Because most of the, correlations of Joseph and Jesus, they kind of stop right there. Uh, and, and you don't hear much more about the picture of Joseph and, and Jesus and what have you, but I, I think it goes a little further. And that is, do you remember when Joseph's brothers show up in Egypt uh, and they're, 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 they're dying because they're hungry and they stand before Joseph. And do you remember what happened? Joseph, he, one of the things he did when he got out of prison, uh, he did something strange and, and you might miss it in the English text, but he got out of prison and he shaved himself. Now you're like, oh, he got a nice little trim on his beard. No, he shaved himself. Like he, he became totally hairless is the, is the original kind of implication. Now who does that? Well, as it turns out, anybody know? All the Egyptians. The Egyptians, remember Yul Brynner? He was the perfect guy for that role. 
uh, as the Pharaoh in the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's and Charlton Heston. And C- um, but the Egyptians were totally into the, like the shaving of all their hair at the time. They were also into painting their faces, not just the ladies, but the men as well. And there's an implication, if you look for it, in the original language of the Hebrew, that maybe Joseph even sort of, he shaved himself and he painted his face a little bit to sort of look Egyptian. And he went and, and met the Pharaoh at that moment. Another thing we learn about Joseph, do you remember when his brothers came and bowed before him, just like Joseph had a dream when he was young and that was a fulfilling part of that? Well, do you remember, um, by the way, Joseph's father and mother would also bow down before Joseph, which is interesting when you think of Joseph and Mary uh, and knowing that Jesus was greater than his father and mother uh, because he was God in the flesh, right? Are you still with me on this? So the, the, the Jews come from far, afar, and to get some food from this guy in Egypt, but because he's bald as a bat and he's, he's, he's painted up like an Egyptian, and does anybody know what language was he speaking the whole time? Egyptian. He was walking like an Egyptian. He was talking like an Egyptian. Um, Joseph looked, they thought, who's this Egyptian dude? They didn't even recognize him as a Jew, let alone their brother. Now this is where it gets interesting. When Jesus came on the scene, did they recognize Jesus as the Messiah? No. And I'll tell you why, because they thought he was like the Gentiles. This guy looks like a Gentile to us. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He doesn't, you know, he's picking corn on the Sabbath day. He's breaking our rules. Like to them, he looked like a foreigner because he wasn't doing the, this. Now, by the way, Jesus never broke the law. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Jews had added all kinds with the Mishnah and all these other uh, things that they added to make sure nobody was breaking the, the Jewish laws of, of Moses. They added to it so much so that you couldn't even wear false teeth on, a, on the Sabbath day. Or, or if you had a wooden leg, you had to unscrew it and, and sit down all day on the Sabbath because carrying wood on the Sabbath is a work. So you can't wear, like they just made a bunch of stupid rules. And Jesus said, I'm not gonna keep your, the traditions of men that's a great thing to remember. Jesus was not into the traditions of men. Remember that if you grew up in a church that had strong traditions that are not in the Bible, those traditions might be fun. They might be f- cool, but don't, don't be militant about those traditions just because you know, your church you grew up and said you had to wear those clothes or do those things. The Bible is the only thing that matters when it comes to keeping the right things going. Jesus knew that difference. He blew off the traditions of men, but kept the word of God perfectly every single time. But so different was he than the Jews expected the Messiah to be. They didn't even recognize him and said, this man is not, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. So much did they not recognize Jesus. I believe the picture of Joseph as being a type or picture of Christ in the Old Testament is a reminder of the Jews and their inability to see Jesus as the Messiah to this very day. To the Jews today, they look at us Gentiles as we worship Jesus and they're like, you guys are a bunch of weirdos. The Jews don't know why. Why do these American Christians support Israel? And why do they come to the Holy Land all the time to see these places where Jesus walked? Because you know what? The Jews there don't care where Jesus walked. They care where Moses walked or where Elijah was or you know, their history there with, with some of those Old Testament Hebrew Bible stuff. But when it comes to the New Testament, the Jews are like, yeah, whatever. Because Jesus is, looks like a foreigner to them right now. There's gonna come a time well, they're gonna recognize Jesus. And there's all these little revelation moments in the Bible recorded. In Zechariah, we'll read where the Jews were gonna see Jesus. And they go, what? This really was the, and they'll say, whoa, where did you get those wounds? And Jesus will say, I received these wounds in the house of my friends. Like, like the Jews are gonna have a, a, a kind of a heavy awakening at some point when they see that Jesus is the Messiah. So Joseph is this amazing picture of, of, of you know, the Messiah, Jesus, and they, they can't see it uh, right now at all, by the way. By the way, one of the things a lot of people forget is, um, do you remember the name that Joseph received? He, he even had a different name um, than, than, uh, than Joseph. Uh, does anybody remember the name? 20 points for the person who remembers the name. Huh? Yes, somebody's got it. Zaf Nafpanea, there she is. Okay, you get a bonus, bonus point. I, you know, we need to do a thing where like you get something free in the bookstore. Uh, <laughs> who's got the bookstore tonight? You can go in there and get anything you want for free. One, whatever you want, one thing in the bookstore, pick it up tonight, okay? Yeah, that's a good one right there. <laughs> I love that, yeah. Um, 
so there's, there's some cool Bibles, by the way, in there right now. If you haven't found, there's a, they got a nice, but anyway, Zaphnaphpanea is the name. <laughs> and you expected mothers, you might wanna choose that as a birth name for your child. <laughs> Call him Zaphi for short, but Zaphnaphpanea. Uh, the, 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 by the way, it means several things. In kind of a Hebrew way, it means the revealer of secrets. That's interesting. But if you go outside of the Bible and the Hebrew, and you look at the Egyptologists and the people that are into the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian language, this isn't even a Bible thing. You know what they call, what Zaphnaphtapanea means? It means this, the salvation of the world. Pharaoh called Joseph the salvation of the world. That, that's something for me. I think that's awesome. Uh, who calls somebody that? Uh, let alone your underling, technically. Uh, he calls him the, the salvation of the world. Now, all that to say, Joseph's an amazing guy, beautiful picture of, of Jesus. But I, I also wonder, um, you know, um, why it is that the Lord pulls Joseph out in this story. I think part of it is this revealing of, of not just Jesus to the Jews. I think we're seeing that. But there's two branches. You say, Brett, when we first started talking about the two branches at the end of chapter 37, and do you see what I'm saying? Nobody focuses on this part of this chapter. Everybody focuses on the dry bones because it's cool. But I'm trying to bring this together because this, this is really cool. The two branches of Romans chapter 11, I see that there's a tie-in to Zaphdepanea and Joseph and the church of Jesus Christ. Let me show you what I mean. And let's just review for a second. Uh, Romans chapter 11, you can jot this down or turn there real quick if you, if you want. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 13, this is again, Paul's, he's spelling it out for us, how, how this is all gonna shake out. But in Romans chapter 11, it says, verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am a, the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, who's, who's Paul's flesh? Anybody? The Jews. He wants to do what? He says that I, that I might provoke to emulate, emulation, to, to model my, my lifestyle and my belief system, um, that I might save some of them, the Jews. Isn't that funny how Paul so much wanted to save Jews and his whole life, he's like, Lord, come on, let me witness to the Jews. And the Lord says, no, you're the minister of the Gentiles. Please, Lord, I wanna, and he'd go, he'd even disobey the Lord and go minister to the Jews and they'd like kill, almost kill, no, they'd killed him. Remember the group of Jews, they killed him outside of the city and, and he was under a pile of rocks, dead probably had a vision of heaven right there. Uh, and then suddenly the Lord says, Paul, you're not done yet. So he gives him life again. He comes out of the rocks and goes and preaches to the Gentiles. But Paul constantly wanted to minister to the Jews, but he, he was called the minister to the Gentiles. He says, I wanna provoke the Jews, verse 15, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall be the receiving of them be? But life from the dead, okay, now, uh, if the Jews are cast away like the dead branch, then what happens to the rest of the world, Paul's asking. Um, and this is an important thing for, for the replacement theology Christians to say, God's done with the Jews. Stupid. Check this out, verse 16, I'll show you why. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches are be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them with them that partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root of thee. Uh, now this is just King James saying this. Christians, we got to be grafted into the salvation of the Jews. The Jews are the ones who brought salvation through Jesus Christ, the Jew. And it's of the Jews, God's gonna still revive them as a nation. God still has a plan for the Jews. We Christians were grafted into the vine of the Jews. So when the church says the Jews are stupid and that God doesn't care about them, they've got the chainsaw out and they just cut down the root that they're connected to. I call that the Donald Duck syndrome. Remember the cartoon where Donald Duck was sawing off the branch that he was standing on? <laughs> That's what Christians that are sawing off the branch are doing when they cut off the Jews and say, God's done with the Jews. No, the root has to stay alive. The Jews are still alive and God's got it. We've just been grafted in as the Gentiles. And so Paul says, don't boast against the root. 
We as Christians should not boast against the Jews. We should be humble and realize, man, it's of the Jews that we were saved through the, 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 the Jew, Jesus Christ. Um, verse 19, it goes on and says, will thou say then that the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in? Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. In other words, the Lord did break off some of the branches. Uh, and he did that during the diaspora and the judgment of the Jews throughout the ages. But the root's still there. God's promise is still to the Jews. So we've been grafted in. Verse 21, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare thee not. In other words, if God dumped the branches of the Jews, then why wouldn't he just dump you too? The grafted branch. But behold, verse 22, therefore the goodness and severity of God um, on them which fell, severity but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. And that's where Jesus said, abide in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branch. Like this is the, this is the imagery of the Bible. Now, if Jesus is the branch, if, if we're seeing Joseph, back to Ezekiel. Okay, so far, before we leave Romans, remember the most classic part, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel <clears throat> until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. When will the Jews have the blindness lifted from their eyes? When the rapture of the church happens and the Gentile church is out of here. That's during the tribulation period. The eyes of the Jews will be opened. They'll say, where did you get those wounds? And Jesus will say, I've received these in the house of my friend. You see, this is all God's plan and it's unfolding and we're seeing the stage set for all this. But when we go back to Ezekiel now and we see these two branches, one of them being Joseph, that's been grafted together with this other vine of Judah and Israel, this is the moment I believe Ezekiel's giving us one of those revealed secrets of the Bible that God is gonna at that time join the Jews with Jesus uh, during the millennial kingdom. That's when it's all gonna come to fruition. You see the context of Ezekiel 37 verses you know, uh, 15 and, or I should say 16 all the way down through the rest of this, uh, pardon me, I'm looking at the wrong page. Um, <laughs> verse 17 uh, all the way down to the end of this chapter, it's talking about the millennial kingdom and these two sticks will ultimately be brought, brought together. And I would make this argument. It's not just Joseph that is part of that stick, but I think that it's also linked to the imagery of, of Romans 11 that, that Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. Do you guys understand that from the, the Bible? That Jesus is the head of the church. Christ, it's called the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. So when I see this Joseph branch being joined with Israel and Judah, you almost think, well, when did Joseph become a foreign branch to the rest of Israel? It's when Jesus, who's pictured by Joseph in the Old Testament, um, became uh, a baby born in Bethlehem and lived on this earth. The Jews rejected him, they despised him, and then said, we will not have this man rule over us. And then the church was started there. So Joseph, for sure, I believe it for sure means that it's Jesus, but it might also be a sort of a message of the body of Christ, the church being part of that branch of Joseph being joined together because of the imagery of Romans 11. Are you guys with me on this? This is what's gonna happen and see, you say, Brett, well, we, we kind of know all this stuff. Well, if you've been going through the Bible and you have a, a Bible teacher that will teach all through the scripture, this is stuff that we know is gonna happen. But 50 years ago, or I should say seven years ago, before Israel was a nation, people didn't know that this was gonna happen at all. And they didn't think of a literal Israel and a joining of branches. All this meant nothing to people. But as we get closer to the day, we're seeing exactly how it's gonna unfold. The Jews are gonna reject Christ by and large in the world um, until the rapture of the church. Once the rapture of the church happens, we, the bride of Christ, go on the uh, heavenly honeymoon in heaven. Uh, and remember when a, a man and a wife are um, married, how does the Bible view those two people? One, we're gonna go up to the marriage feast of the lamb. We're gonna be the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. The, then the second coming of Christ, he comes with 10,000s of his saints. That's us. And when we come with him after we're raptured, seven year honeymoon in heaven, seven year tribulation on earth, we return with him and we rule and reign with him on this earth. The Jews will have a very specific job, by the way, um, 
in the millennial kingdom. And we'll talk about that uh, later in Ezekiel because that's gonna all shake out. Um, so, so all that to say, you've seen all these graphics that we have. Uh, Micah and I were having fun putting bones on our graphics and stuff. That's why we put those up there <laughs> for the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, that little, see the little stair step there? That's actually a tiny little quarter inch picture that I drew in my Bible of, of part of the temple uh, that, that, that's described in Ezekiel's time. And so we blew it up. Uh, it, it looks kind of shaky because it's only about a quarter inch in my Bible, but we blew that up. But we're, these images, these are all things Ezekiel saw and it's all pertaining to the future of what's gonna happen in the world. And wait till we get to the next chapter. Because in Ezekiel 38, in 36, we saw the physical regathering. In 37, we see the spiritual breathing of life into them and the coming into the millennial kingdom. In chapter 38, so you can almost in some ways kind of check some boxes in 36 and 37. Not all the boxes, some of the boxes. But in 38, it's, it's basically, it says, this will be one of the events that will lead up to that ultimate moment when the, the, branch, the branch will be joined together, the son of David will rule and reign on the throne of, in Jerusalem. These things have to happen before and it's gonna be there in Ezekiel 38 where we'll see that. By the way, I don't believe Ezekiel 38 has to happen before the rapture of the church can happen. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because the eminence of the rapture, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when the Lord's gonna take the church out. The uh, Gog-Magog war could happen a week before the rapture. It could happen a week after the rapture. I don't know for sure. But we look for the rapture of the church, but somewhere near the rapture, either before or after, um, I think it could be before, but um, uh, that's gonna kick in the Ezekiel 38 Gog-Magog invasion. And that's what we're gonna attempt to uh, take a look at uh, next Wednesday night. So don't miss it. Be there or be square. Uh, in Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for these beautiful pictures uh, that we have in your word about your plan and your purpose. Oh Lord, forgive the church, the Gentile church for being um, arrogant like Paul warned against where we have dismissed the Jews altogether. Um, we've seen horrible anti-Semitic behavior from your church that go all the way back through uh, even early church times. Uh, we see where the Christian church largely rejected the Jews. But we know, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose for your people. And we look forward to seeing them come to know your Messiah, Jesus. Um, but until then, I pray, Lord, that we'd be lights in this dark world, walking with you, um, keeping our eyes looking, even as you tell us to watch and be ready in these last days. Help us not to be ignorant concerning Israel, uh, ignorant concerning the last days. Help us to be students of your word and receptive to what your word teaches. So we pray your blessing now. May good fruit come from tonight's study in Jesus' name. Amen.